Welcome to the Before the Court podcast. My name is Brittany Phillips and I'm the Industry Careers Director for 2022. Joining me today is Beth Joel and Beth is one of our Industry Careers officers. Absolutely. So in the early 1980s, two brothers from Melbourne's western suburbs and no previous exposure to the real world of the legal profession graduated from Melbourne Uni with law degrees and absolutely no idea where those degrees were going to take them. While both have been successful, their careers could hardly have been more different. Today, we are hearing from the older brother, Kim Henderson, whose career has involved a number of twists and turns, which nonetheless entitle him to now look back on his 40-year legal journey, proud of his reputation and with a high level of personal satisfaction. This is the story of Kim Henderson's legal career and some of the lessons that he has taken from it, which are hopefully of some assistance to those soon to embark on their own So, Kim, welcome to the Before the Court podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Could you please start off by introducing yourself to our listeners? Yeah, uh, thanks, Brittany, um, for, um, for the opportunity. Yes, uh, so uh, I'm a uh, self-employed um, family law financial settlement mediator. Um, I'm an accredited family law specialist. Uh, so I've been accredited as a family law specialist since 1996 uh, and uh, as a mediator um, second time round uh, since uh, 2011. And perhaps at some stage as we go on, I'll indicate what I refer to by second time round. Um, potted story of my career is that uh, I was um, Melbourne Uni doing law and arts between 1977 and 1981. I then had um, uh, two and a half years um, with um, posted 12 months of admission and then um, went through the graduate scheme, which was then articles, and then um, 18 months post admission before going to the bar in 1984. Uh, where I remained until the start of 1990. Um, then 1990 till 2011 was with uh, substantial Geelong legal practice. And then since 2011, it's been Mediate First with my wife as my offsider. So that's that's been the journey. It's had a few twists and turns uh, um, along the way within that um, brief description. But uh, that's how we got from being a 22-year-old law student to whatever age I am at the moment. <laughs> uh, so you did mention that you started off as a barrister. So could you please talk about what being a barrister was like and if there was any particular reason that you decided to become a barrister? Uh, uh, Beth, perhaps not the answer you might want to expect, but it was really more about um, um, an underwhelming experience in the early years as a solicitor. Uh, which I suspect is um, fairly common after the honeymoon period um, passes and you realise that this is your fate going going forward and do you just roll with it or do you sort of take control? Um, and it's sometimes, uh, you know, sometimes it's not so much what you know but who you know, and I know that's a cliche, and more often than not, it's a cliche that suggests you know you've got uh, got connections that you know people in high places. Well, they're not always where you expect to find them, and um, and my connection was um, continuing to maintain my athletics involvement and being on the committee of my athletics club in Melbourne, um, despite living in Geelong for that two and a half year period. 
uh, and um, the president of the, of the Athletics Club was uh, an ex-champion high jumper who'd graduated to being a um, very senior um, Melbourne criminal barrister. And um, all he knew about me was that I was a half-decent runner and um, could take decent committee minutes. And uh, when I was saying to him after a meeting one night that I was having a fairly unsatisfactory experience, he, he simply said, oh, well, come to the bar and read with me. It'll be great fun. Uh, and uh, and that was really about all it took. But in reality, it was a, a crazy decision. I was 25. Uh, I'd barely been inside a court. Um, I'd had very limited criminal law experience, and there I was going to be reading with a criminal barrister. Um, but, um, yeah, what else would I to do? So, uh, so I returned to Melbourne and... Um, and in September 1984, commenced uh, uh, the Bar Readers course. Uh, you know, looking back at it now, you know, what a crazy decision. And certainly, you know, if I had to do the, the Bar Readers exam that's in place at the moment, you know, I wouldn't have even Carmichael Connolly. They're all, um, you know, they weren't in those positions, obviously, at that stage. But, um, you know, I was seriously out of my depth with that lot. Um, but they were really... Um, encouraging and um, and we still have reunions um, of of that crew. So that's 1984. So you know we're getting on to um, 40, you know 35, 36 years ago. Um, and um, they're always curious as to what direction my career has taken. Where there's just you know sort of continued on this uh, this almost predictable pathway. Um, so that was all very well, you know, the, the reading period uh, with um, my criminal barrister um, master, as I think they still call them masters, but that's what they were called in those days. Uh, but we got to the end of the reading period when you could take briefs and, uh, and all my cohort, they immediately started getting off to court with either legal connections or family legal connections or whatever it may have been. And... Uh, I'm sitting in the corner of my um, master's chambers, staring at the phone, um, waiting for it to ring. And it was never going to ring. Who was going to ring? <laughs> it was just because um, I didn't know anybody. Um, our family had had no legal connections of any description. Dad was a middle manager at Ford and mum was a librarian. Um, and um, we'd never even moved house. It had a conveyancing transaction. So we just had no, no connections with, with law. Uh, and look, by the um, end of uh, the middle of December 1984, I um, trudged off to my clerk's uh, rooms and I said, look, I think I've made a terrible mistake. Um, I'm 26. I've run out of money. I've moved back home with my parents and uh, I think I better get a real job. Uh, and um, Rick Howes, to his eternal credit, said, um, look, what, you're not going to get a job over Christmas as a solicitor, everybody's on holidays. Um, why don't you just uh, stick with it and come back into Chambers uh, on the day after Boxing Day? Uh, and uh, no, no self-respecting barrister works during that period, but there's, there's work. Um, so I did. Uh, and uh, kind of the rest is history. I just, uh, the, the work started coming through from lawyers that I'd I didn't know from Bar of Soap and they were only going, being pointed in my direction because of the clerk. 
Um, they, they just needed someone cheap to act for their poor old clients who got themselves into strife over the uh, over the festive season. Um, but um, but once we were off, we were off, and um, so within two years, uh, well, in a short period of time, I'd moved out of my master's chambers and taken chambers of my own. Um, bought a house in Williamstown, got married, and um, and we're sort of off to the race. Uh, and frankly, I actually didn't really see myself as a career criminal barrister. Uh, I, um, it was just what I'd fallen into. Um, but life um, makes us twists and turns, and um, out of the blue, I re received a, a phone call, which I'll, I'll just talk about in a moment. But um, I guess in, in response to Beth's question, I don't think anybody um, with half a brain would contemplate going to the bar um, the way I did, uh, and uh, and whether that's even still possible for someone with such limited experience. Uh, it certainly seems to me that, um, and what I see with the barristers that I that I work with, is that um, most of them have, all of them have now got a substantial body of genuine legal experience behind them. And even if they don't necessarily see themselves working indefinitely as barristers in the area that they were practicing in as solicitors, it at least gives them some bread and butter to fall back on and it gives them some connections to fall back on until they um, find find their way and, uh, and work out uh, what's really going to be their area of practice. I suspect if you ask not most barristers, because I think most now probably go with such a level of experience that they know what they want to do and where where they want to practice. But I think you'd still find a very substantial number would say that they are practicing in areas they didn't expect to be practicing in when they, um, because that's not going to work. Um, I just just got lucky, but by the same token, I I made the most of it. Um, on a slightly um, amusing note, perhaps um, look, I was so baby-faced at the time that I grew a beard and wore false glasses just so that, uh, so that I... It is really interesting to hear a bit of a different story. I think we often think that it's quite a linear process or there's a certain sort of way that you would always go to get to a particular point. So it's always interesting to hear something a bit different and especially when you were talking about um, the contact that you knew that within a, an athletic setting sort of just said to you, oh, why don't you just come and read with me? Um, yeah, it'll be great fun. <laughs> I was sure yeah. saying it'll be great fun. <laughs> yeah, it was a very, um, a very interesting thing to hear. What was the area of law that you were originally practising in as a solicitor before you went towards the criminal side as a barrister? Yeah, um, so that's, so one of the reasons that my um, articles and immediate post-admission years was unsatisfactory was that the firm I was with, in Geelong, which so we're going to mention the firm names a few times. So um, there's there were two firms in Geelong in the uh, early 80s who had been there forever. One was a firm called Harwood and Pincott, which was a very old and staid firm that had um, clients like the city of Geelong, Geelong Grammar, um, Bar and Water, Marcus Oldham, Agricultural College, and any number of uh, of, sort of wealthy individual clients, but they were a very staid and conservative practice and the partners held on to that work very tightly. 
uh, and I was actually articled to the conveyancing, not formally articled, but uh, in reality articled to the conveyancing clerk, who was a lovely fellow of about 45, who'd started as the office boy at age 15. And, uh, and literally there was nothing he didn't know about property law. And, uh, and he was uh, a great mentor uh, in that very limited field, but uh, which turned out to be extraordinarily helpful when I started to remember things after my years as a criminal barrister when I moved into the family law financial settlement space and um, and property and real estate issues are, are key to it. So I was very fortunate there. The other firm that's going to be mentioned is Andrews and Backhouse, which is the firm that I subsequently joined and, um, and the two came together uh, in the uh, early 1990s. It's, we have the substantial practice in Geelong and Melbourne these days of Harvard Andrews. So, um, so I've got a foot in both camps and I've probably is the marriage celebrant in some ways, uh, which I might uh, tell you a bit about in, in due course. Yeah, so that's, so essentially I spent, um, I spent two and a half years doing conveyance. Conveyancing. So we went from conveyancing to, um, to crime. And then I got this phone call from uh, one of the young partners at Andrews and Backhouse, so not Harwood Pincott. Uh, and, uh, and I'd known him um, vaguely when I was uh, had been in Geelong. Um, I'd been on in the Geelong Law Association committee with him. So again, what you know, but who you know. Uh, and um, he just rang in completely out of the blue, and I might say they hadn't briefed me at all while I was at the bar, uh, and said, um, "Would uh, our family law um, partners retiring, would you be interested in returning to Geelong and heading up our family law department? Interesting um, proposition when I had to say to him, thanks, Richard, that's, that's interesting, but you are aware I've never had a single family law file, aren't you? He said, oh, yeah, no, that's okay. Um, you've got common sense and you, you're a sound fellow. Um, so um, you'll work it out. Uh, and uh, I thought, oh, okay. Um, if he'd rung up and said, we want you to head the probate department, um, at that stage I was so, and with the promise of partnership if it all worked out, uh, I so didn't want to be criminal barrister indefinitely. And I, just, I did want to have a, what I saw as a, a useful um, specialty. Um, uh, I, I didn't immediately say yes, that would have been a bit too easy, but uh, but in my mind, um, I, th I think the timing was fortuitous. And uh, uh, and so um, a few months later, I, I wrapped up my briefs at the bar and, um, and returned to Geelong um, and to find that the family law department now consisted of two lawyers, um, the very old um, senior partner who was um, about to retire and uh, and me uh, and uh, in the scheme of things we were pretty inconsequential because Andrews and Backhouse main uh, overwhelmingly main client was the Pyramid Building Society uh, and at that stage the firm was 200 strong with um, uh, offices in Geelong, Sydney and Melbourne uh, and um, and I, I really, to this day, don't know why they even bothered with the family law department because it was making such a minimal contribution to the bottom line. Um, but they, 
that the invitation was made and I turned up and uh, and my uh, secretary who's, um, well, turned out to be my secretary, who's now my wife, who is listening to this conversation, um, pops into the office and uh, and said in the absence, the, the, the older partner was on holidays when I turned up and I was sitting in his monstrous office looking over Cryo Bay and uh, and she denies this conversation, but it's true. Uh, she walked in and said, so what do you want me to do? And I've said, I've got no idea. <laughs> and she just turned around and muttered something about typical as she walked out of the, out of the room. Um, it wasn't a great start to our relationship, but it's gone gone well ever since. Oh, love uh, story. <laughs> sorry? <laughs> yeah, classic love story, yes. Um, so, uh, but uh, it wasn't um, six months when the family law department actually assumed some importance at uh, Andrews and Backhouse because Pyramid collapsed. The firm went from 200 to 35. Uh, it was nearly dead and buried uh, and, um, and they needed every department in the place um, pulling its weight to keep the bank at bay and, um, uh, and survive. Uh, as, as it did, um, the promise of partnership sort of got watered down to non-equity at the end of 12 months, but I was comfortable with that because there wasn't any equity to be part of uh, at, that, at that stage. Um, but everybody was working terribly hard to, those that survived and, and, um, and four partners survived. Um, those who survived um, just, work their backsides off to keep the place afloat. Uh, and as I say, the family law department um, became, even though there were still only two of us, um, our contribution to the bottom line helped. Uh, and, um, and John Backhouse, who was the elderly partner, he, he stayed on a little longer, he money tied up in pyramids, so his circumstances changed a bit. Uh, and he proved to be just the mentor that I wish I'd had when I was doing my articles. He was engaging and um, passionate and uh, and uh, enthusiastic about about the law. And, uh, he'd been practicing family law since the Matrimonial Causes Act, which was state legislation that preceded the Family Law Act. Uh, so he'd seen it all in a family law area, and he just said to me, "You know, I know you've come from a barrister background." but this is a jurisdiction where people must be encouraged to negotiate and settle. It's too damaging for uh, the people, um, both financially and emotionally, and in terms of time lost. Uh, and so that really set in motion my philosophy of, um, of negotiating sound settlements, not best case settlements, sound settlements in a, in a timely manner. So the 20 years I had as a solicitor uh, doing family law, um, most of which as an accredited specialist, I had one case go to trial uh, and, uh, and set, literally settled every other case. Um, no pushback from clients about um, underselling them. Um, my clients became my best source of referrals. Um, many remain good friends uh, to this day. Uh, so uh, that really sowed the John Backhouse's mm -hmm. comments in the early 90s really sowed the seed of uh, you've, you've got to treat your clients with respect uh, and listen to them, but you've got to keep them out of court. And, uh, 
And so that was that was the mantra that I adopted. Really interesting talking about family law that you said you had one case that went to court. Um, In 20 years. Yeah, to be able to negotiate. I, I think I've seen a lot um, of late of eagerness from people to want to go to court. And I definitely think that just the whole process and the emotion of it, um, yeah, that's quite amazing to... I don't... People might think they want to go to court, yeah. but I don't think too many after the court experience yeah. actually think that was such a good idea. Accredited mediator. So could you please talk about the process of becoming accredited as a mediator and why you decided to become a mediator? Um, so I, I mentioned earlier that I had a couple of starts. So in 2000, so the uh, inclination to negotiate sort of sat comfortably with the uh, with the plan to at some stage become a, a mediator. Uh, in about 2004, I did the um, the Bond Uni um, mediation course. My memory is a bit faint, but I'm pretty sure I got through. But um, uh, but uh, upon returning to um, back to the office, I essentially didn't fire a shot. Uh, and uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why barristers have the inside running with particularly family law mediations. Uh, that it's hard when you are in a large practice to then. Um, sort of put yourself forward as a, a, a mediator who's really a silo uh, and, and also to, for people to not think that you're sort of in some ways, tank is not quite, perhaps quite the right word, but, you know, are, are you as independent? Even if your firm's not involved in the mediation, so it wouldn't be. Um, it just doesn't look like you're standing aside from the, the rest of the run of the profession and that's why I think the barristers have the inside um, running um, and uh, so really I just uh, nothing came of that initial um, accreditation process and until got to 2010 2011 and uh, and uh, thought that it was it was time to have another go uh, and um, but my wife and I worked out that we needed, if we were going to go down this path, we needed to have a point of difference. Uh, and just to, to say, um, I'm going to do conciliation conference style mediations, but it's immediately going to put me uh, in, um, in a battle for work with the, with the barristers without any runs on the board. So we, um, we adopted what we called a direct mediation model, uh, where as a couple, um, we would um, sit across the table from unrepresented um, clients, um, particularly we're talking heterosexual couples. So it meant there were two blokes and two ladies in the room. Uh, and, um, and we presented to um, all my uh, accounting and um, financial services um, referrers who had referred work to me at uh, Howard Andrews uh, and um, who were very receptive to the idea of their clients cutting straight to the chase of mediation, often without having had individual legal advice, confident in the knowledge that we provide them with information, if not, if not actually advice, um, to help them make decisions. 
so um, for the first uh, four years. So um, that was our uh, so I didn't get any um, conciliation conference style mediations from the local firms, and that's that was fine. Uh, but they were seeing what we were doing because I, as the mediator, I couldn't then do the settlement documentation. So I developed a quite um, a detailed report writing um, process that then gave the lawyers tasked with uh, doing the settlement documentation, effectively just gave it to them on a platter in terms of the financial information and the issues that were discussed and, and the outcome. So, um, it, gradually became obvious to particularly the local profession in Geelong that I knew what I was doing and uh, and was um, sound about it and uh, and so trickle of um, conciliation style conferences became be for a certain mediation so um, just what like an average case would look like um, so I'll briefly touch on the different so the direct mediation model and I must say um, that we ceased offering that in the middle of the year because we were overwhelmed, uh, middle of 2021, because we were overwhelmed by the lawyer mediations, which is regrettable because, to the best of my knowledge, um, no one's offering that service in the more complex financial settlement range. I think some of the um, government-funded organisations that are primarily focused on parenting matters will put their toe in the water in relation to some more straightforward financial matters um, without lawyers being in the in the room but once there is any complexity I think that they um, would prefer not to so I'm not a, a, and as barristers aren't offering the direct mediation model for the reasons I indicated some time ago that they are uh, paranoid about being in the same room as two two clients uh, so it's I think it's regrettable that um, that if we're not offering it then uh, I suspect it's not out there but um, typically those would start by someone ringing up and saying oh my husband and I want to book in for a mediation. What dates have you got? Uh, and uh, I say, well, it's not, it doesn't quite work like that. Um, I need some information from you and I've got some forms I need you to fill out which give me that information. Uh, and um, you complete those and get back to me and uh, I'll give you some dates. And uh, we, you'd have the scenario where a certain proportion would return the paperwork within the week. So a certain proportion would return the paperwork within two months. A certain proportion would return the paperwork within two years. And a certain proportion you'd never hear of again. It was all too hard. I never quite knew what became of those people, but uh, but we didn't we didn't see that that last group we saw didn't see again. Um, so and it was imperative with that sort of mediation that. I was satisfied that they had been absolutely transparent in terms of what they were providing to me and to each other. Uh, and um, uh, it, it, it was, yeah, it was imperative that, um, and, and they both trusted that the other had provided all the information that they, that they needed. Uh, and then we would conduct a fair, so once I had the material, we'd make a date. Uh, and the four of us, say uh, Jennifer and I, and and the and the couple, and and typically it would be a two to three hour discussion um, where I um, kept them on the um, on the tram lines of where a settlement needed to head, and when they moved outside the tram lines, explained to them why 
that probably wasn't going to work and they needed to 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 come back uh, and um, so you know constantly giving um, direction and and hoping that um, that that and overwhelmingly more often than not then lead to them uh, recognizing that there was a fairly narrow range of reasonable outcomes that were appropriate for their situation and then encourage them to settle in the midpoint of, of those and then I would then do a report and they'd take it off to their lawyer to uh, to um, one of them would take it to a lawyer to to then document so um, that, that's the direct mediation model but probably not all that <laughs> relevant given that there's probably nobody offering it so the more traditional conciliation conference style mediation um does involve basically getting the same sort of me getting the same sort of brief that a barrister would get um some uh, uh prolix and extensive and uh and contain vastly more information than is relevant to the financial settlement component of their case and others uh i must say i've provided the lawyers uh, who briefed me with the same paperwork that I've provided to, to the direct clients with the invitation, if that's how you want to provide me with the materials, um, that's all I need. Uh, and probably uh, about half simply fill out my forms and uh, and send them back to me. And then you can obviously get the other extreme of the voluminous briefs, but whatever I get back, I read. So, yeah. Uh, um, Hence, I prefer the brief ones, but the uh, sorry, the, the abbreviated ones. But that's um, not always what happens. Uh, and the, and what technique do I use? I pretend I'm the judge. Um, uh, I prepare for every case as if I'm going to have to make a decision. I don't. I don't want to share um, those views un unless the mediation is really running out of steam late in the, the day, and and I'm asked to. But I've found that uh, that it's the way of guaranteeing that I know uh, what's what's going what's going on, uh, and I'm not going to be um, uh, distracted by um, by issues emerging that uh, I haven't turned my mind to. So it is a bit of an interesting exercise. I've got a, a few templates that um, that I've worked up over the years that allow me to summarise the most um, complex um, set of circumstances into some fairly um, um, brief um, sort of Excel spreadsheet type um, documents. My wife's laughing. She, she goes, I can't work an Excel spreadsheet. I've got my own version. So <laughs> but, uh, they work. Um, they work for me. Uh, and um, yeah, so that's how I prepare. Uh, but my approach is to um, so so initially when I transitioned from direct mediations to conciliation conference style mediations, uh, I was still very much imposing myself uh, as I did in the direct mediations. But uh, as I got more experienced and more confident, um, less is best, and uh, and uh, I've adopted the approach of making it clear by the questions I ask in the early parts of the sessions that I know what's going on so I don't try and pull the wool over my eyes but uh, but I'm not going to um, put my oar in the water unless it's absolutely necessary but at the end of the day there's very few um, mediations which are ended um, without uh, which haven't 
got to a settlement uh, late in the day where I'm not asked to express an opinion, even even in cases where there are very senior barristers involved. They, you know, people want an outcome, uh, and uh, um, yeah, so then you've got to obviously uh, got to be there's a there's a way of conveying that information, and you can't be too prescriptive, not making a decision for people and you don't want people to go away from mediation saying the mediator decided that this is what we're going to do. And, you know, occasionally um, the mediation negotiation will have gone into a range that actually sits outside where I where I anticipated the settlement would go um, and, and I'll find some reason not to express an opinion in that case because if I was to express my view, then I'm just going to get have the mediation end with them further apart than um, more, more confused uh, than they um, than they might have been. So if there's a you know a different range that's been identified and, and settlement occurs within that range and I haven't said anything and then that's that's fine. You know, if if I thought the settlement was not capable of being approved, then I would make a comment, but that's unlikely where they're uh, uh, experienced counsel. If my view is within the sort of range which has been discussed, then I'm quite happy to, um, to to pass comment. But if my assessment is outside the range, then I'll... This position where you are actually able to be assisting people in what's most likely to be one of the most difficult times in their life um, and... I guess, sort of further to that, what keeps you motivated to be um, in this role as a mediator? Um, well, I think in some ways the answer to that goes right back to the advice I got from John Backhouse when I went back to um, being a, a solicitor and uh, and a fledgling family lawyer in 1990, which was uh, you've got to keep people out of court. Uh, so that's, um, that's really been the... the Sort of the guiding principle, um, and and look, the reality may be that you know one in a thousand clients might get uh, who start the legal process might get an outcome from a court that um, ticks all the boxes for them, but um, even they could not have been certain of getting that outcome, and they've doubtless spent a lot of their time, money, and emotional energy um, getting there. Um, I, I see very few people get on with their lives while there are family court proceedings um, hanging uh, over their over their head. Uh, people describe it as a swamp, and people either uh, tread water or, or drown in swamps, and that's what happens to most people. And they're just grateful to get to the other side uh, at some stage, and the sooner the better. Uh, and um, how many cases that didn't settle at mediation? Settled the court door months and months later, um, based on exactly the same information that was available at the mediation, uh, and with an outcome that was either what was being discussed at the mediation or so close that uh, uh, it's just a nonsense that, um, that an outcome wasn't wasn't achieved. Then, so um, so. It might sound a bit grand, but saving people from from our legals, from our family legal system, that um, people who don't settle at mediation should be in front of a judge for a decision with the same information that was available for mediation a month later, uh, and uh, and 
and um, essentially all the work that's gone into preparing for a mediation is all that's required in most cases for a judicial decision. But because um, they're understaffed and underfunded, um, we have a process of kicking the can down the road and, um, in, and each time that can's kicked, there are more costs for the client and more work for the lawyers um, for, in many instances, relatively little benefit. So, um, so that, that's, again, me on my soapbox. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and look, at a personal level, um, yeah, it, it's, uh, there's a fair bit of pride in, uh, in having got to this position where people um, value the role that you play and um, and and you, you know you're held in um, a high level of esteem for doing so. There's an element of you know, ego involved. I'd be kidding myself if um, if I didn't concede that. Um, but that's and, and yeah, making good living. Um, but um, you know, they're not they're not really they're not the motivations for for, for doing it. Um, in some ways, it's. Uh, uh, carrying John Backhouse's legacy <laughs> uh, forward. He was a fantastic fellow. Yeah, that's very lovely. Uh, so do you have any specific advice that you would give to a current law student that might be interested in following a similar pathway, either into becoming a barrister or becoming a mediator? Uh, you have sort of said that you wouldn't recommend becoming a barrister. So well, I, well, well, I wouldn't recommend yeah. becoming a barrister. Just don't adopt my uh, my pathway there. Yeah. Um, oh, well, I think I've um, already made the comment that uh, I, I think someone contemplating going to the bar um, really does need to have a, a body of substantive experience behind them. Um, probably need some money behind them as well, in, in the sense of savings. Um, <laughs> when I, I literally spent every cent that I had, um, and um, you know, going back home to live with your folks at twenty-six, with your tail between your legs, when they thought that you, their um, their their pride and joy eldest had gone off to have a stellar legal career, was uh, was all a bit confronting for for everybody. Um, so, um, you know, having having some um, savings to fall back on is. Is a key thing. I appreciate it. it's difficult for many people, given the sort of age that we're probably talking about, with the necessary experience. That you know, quite possibly there are young families involved and that need to be supported. So it's a it's a it's a high risk um, um, course to, to adopt, uh, um, but extremely rewarding um, when um, when you succeed at it. And you know, for a, in my case, for a, 25 to 30 year old um, to be self-employed, um, making strategic calls, preparing cases, uh, having clients, um, well-being in your in your hands, um, and uh, and still finishing by lunchtime most days and going for a swim in the afternoon was you know a pretty um, pretty fortunate way to spend years 25 to. To thirty again, I'm not quite sure whether that model is still available to, to, to people. Uh, in in terms of um, legal legal practice, uh, generally, particularly as a solicitor, uh, and um, and perhaps more specifically in the family law context, um, I, I think um, Richard Anderson's um, comment to me when he offered me the 
job about it being common sense uh, and um, and having sort of sound judgment and uh, not um, look. I, I I am in awe of people that practitioners who do family law parenting matters uh, because the demands. And the emotion are extraordinary. Um, I don't know whether it's still so much the case, but used to overwhelmingly fall to young female practitioners uh, who um, often wore their heart on their sleeves and and went into bat uh, passionately for their clients. Um, but of my sort of level, I went through uni with uh, there were quite a few quite um, uh, senior. Um, quite a few who went down the family law path because that's, that's the direction they were pointed in at many of the firms they went to. And so few of them remained in the profession through to mature years. They, they were done. Uh, and, um, and I must say, it's not something I'm particularly proud of that, uh, that uh, I saw the financial settlement area as, um, as an easier area in which to practice because it doesn't have the level of heightened emotion you know, I could perhaps rationalise on the basis that maybe there's a bit more um, intellectual element to it than, uh, than there is to the um, parenting side of things, but that's probably un unkind to those who are practising in that area. Um, so um, I, think, I think the practice of family law, which covers both um, parenting and property, is, I mean, they bear no relationship to each other, uh, you know, they, they come under the umbrella of family law, but um, but they're like chalk and cheese in terms of the, the legal principles and the um, the um, the work that's required to um, conduct um, the two sorts of files and so forth. And yet we, as family lawyers, typically we're just um, unless you make the decision, which which I did at quite an early stage of saying. Oh, I don't think I've got the commitment to do parenting cases. I'm sorry, I'll just do property cases. Unless you um, are in a fortunate position of being able to make that call, um, then you find yourself doing this sort of mishmash of on the one hand financial stuff, on the other hand, um, uh, heartstring pulling parenting stuff. Uh, so I think that young practitioners, you know, they need, we've all cut our teeth doing both parenting and um, well, probably more parenting than property when you're cutting your teeth. Uh, at some point, if, um, if you want to be a family lawyer, um, but uh, finding the, the stresses of, of covering both bases too much. In family law at the moment, and I think Beth would probably agree with this, that when you have a financial matter, the work that you're doing, and it's very objective and you just sort of following a process and doing what needs to be done and then the parenting matters are definitely very highly emotional and especially I think having when you're seeing the clients come in firsthand and you're seeing exactly how it's affecting them at the same time um, from what you were saying before I can imagine where doing that for a long period of time can could really take its toll on on um, some young lawyers and in the profession yeah I think I think there's been lots of really Good, skilled, um, particularly female practitioners, certainly of, of my era, who were lost to the profession. Uh, and I don't know, I, I'm not really qualified to comment as to whether that's any different now, but I can't imagine practicing in the parenting space is any easier now than it ever has been. And maybe it's more, even more complicated. Um, 
and certainly the, the Family Law Act uh, has Family Law Act provisions that deal with parenting matters is uh, vastly more detailed than it was in 1975. <laughs> I mean, it, it was um, very brief general terms were used to describe it, whereas now it's you know, quite prescriptive, even if it's hard to work out what the prescription actually means. It's interesting as well, thinking about the practical aspect of it versus what you learn in law school, knowing that a lot of, well, pretty much all of our listeners of this podcast, we're all in law school still, um, a lot might take family law as, a, as an elective. So I think it will be really interesting for people to sort of hear about the practical side of it. Um, and from your perspective as a mediator. The- um, now, this discussion and, and these these comments, um, it's uh, sort of been a warts and all um, confessional sort of uh, sort of discussion. Um, I, 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 as a general comment, I still and I'm just moving away from family law to some extent. I, I still come back to my comment that I I don't think many clients are ever equipped to comment on the competency of of their lawyer. Um, and there's you know, there's been some incredibly competent lawyers who loathed by their clients because of their condescending and patronising and superior manner and you know they walk past them in the street and don't acknowledge them and don't remember them um clients clients are, are people and and if uh and if they've got a legal problem it may seem mundane and uh and a bit pedestrian to the practitioner handling the file because they've done it before. But for the client, this is a serious business. They're not seeing a lawyer unless it's a, uh, a crisis point in there, particularly in the areas we're talking about, you know, conveyancing law um, or um, corporate structuring. <laughs> they're not necessarily, you know, but they're, they're, still, they're still important transactions for the people concerned. But in the, the life crisis situations that, um, that we've been talking about, um, if, if crisis must be treated with, with risk. That sometimes get left behind. Um, and I think we've all sort of had a bit of an experience seeing things like that when you mentioned, um, you know, not being able to correspond with the other side or um, things like that happening. Um, I think it's important to to discuss as well. Yeah, I, I in twenty years of mainstream practice, it would not have been a single occasion where I couldn't see a client within the week of them asking for an appointment. So I don't know what people are doing when they can't get to see their their lawyer for three and four weeks. It does my head in. I think definitely when you mentioned before as well, from their perspective of being a really big thing for them and a big time in their life. Um, it's important to remember to be able to support them as much as you can through that. Yeah, and that doesn't mean that you um, that you become a slave to your clients. You know, yeah. some there'll be some clients that um, that need to be controlled and uh, and and told that you know, a, a daily call or twice daily calls are inappropriate and unnecessary, and you're, and you're paying for them. Um, um, but um, but that's all about client management and, and you, you need to establish your philosophies and your practices about those sorts of things early in the piece. And Your time so far and for coming on our podcast. Um, we've really um, appreciated you taking the time to speak to us today and um, talk about your career, your experiences, um, and we're really excited to be able to share this with students and hopefully they learn a lot or just gain a different perspective as well. Um, 
And so I'm going to hand it back to you, Beth. And we wanted to finish the podcast on a bright note. So we've got a bit of a diff by. Okay. So I have given that some thought. I think it's pretty obvious who has to be at the top of that. <laughs> um, so she shall remain nameless, but uh, she's my regular dinner date. So, uh, and, you know, happy life, happy life. So we'll stick with that one. Um, so, but... Um, and I'm not going to say too much. She would, she, Jen would not want to come to this dinner party with the other two because uh, <laughs> she lo- she loathes politics. Uh, but I, and it's, it might sound initially like a cliche, but I would want to have dinner with Barack Obama and uh, and Malcolm Turnbull and just say, why didn't you do more? What a waste of opportunity uh, at so many levels um, when you had mandates to make genuine change, um, you know, climate change, uh, economic reforms, um, equal opportunity, gender equal opportunity, um, and so, so many other areas. I just, I, I reckon their legacy is our current politicians, and uh, I think that's really unfortunate. So I hope that's not too political for you, and if you want to just rub it out, then <laughs> you can edit it out. But, uh, uh, that, that's my two bobs worth. Very no, we That's very insightful. It's very interesting to hear people's answers to this. I know. We said before we started the podcast, we haven't even thought about who, what we would answer this question with. I don't know what I would say. So, well, I must say, I had, uh, hadn't turned my mind to it until I until I you gave me some warning that that might be a, a question. Um, is yeah. Well, thank you so much again, Kim, um, for joining us on the podcast today. Um, we've really appreciated having you and we've really enjoyed our conversation with you. Uh, and um, I'm, really, I'm flattered by the invitation and uh, I've enjoyed every moment of it. So thank you both and uh, and your questions have been great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.